Since this is Father's Day, I believe God would have me depart from our study of the Acts of the Apostles, and this morning I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I've entitled my discourse to you, Virtues of a Godly Man. Today we give honor to fathers, and we should indeed give honor to whom honor is due. Recently at Mother's Day, I spoke on virtues of a godly woman, and today, virtues of a godly man. God has given us much instruction about what it means to be a godly man, what it means to be a godly woman. And it's interesting that as you look at the Word of God, you quickly discover that He has given far more to husbands and fathers than He has to wives and even children. And consequently, since there's so much more given to we as men, I quickly realize that it's going to take me more than one Sunday to accomplish what I believe God would have me accomplish in speaking to you men, you fathers. You might ask the question, I wonder why? why, why so much more instruction? Well, I believe the answer, at least in part, and certainly primarily, is because the husband's love for his wife is supposed to illustrate Christ's love for the church. That is a tall order. In fact, marriage, as we look at it biblically, is to be a picture, an object lesson of Christ and the church. And men, I would ask you this morning, is this what your children and your friends see in your marriage? If they were to evaluate your marriage, could they look at your marriage and say, you know, I can really see in that relationship a picture of Christ and the church? Dear brothers in Christ, how you treat your wife frankly, reveals how you treat Christ. How you father your children also really betrays your devotion to Christ and His church. And thankfully, God has not left us in the dark about these issues. But men, we must listen very carefully to what the Word of God has to say, because please hear this. One day, we will be held accountable for the way we treated our wives and the way we raised our children. This subject is also of immense importance because over the years it has become exceedingly obvious to me and painfully obvious to me that most Christians do not understand God's design for the family. And some that do understand it outrightly rebel against it. They defy it. And as a result, marriages suffer, families are in turmoil, Christ is, is, is dishonored, and in many cases, entire families live under a cloud of divine chastening and forfeited blessing. You know, re- routinely I hear husbands and wives and children lament over family problems. There's never, never a week that goes by that I do not hear something about that either in this church or from this church or from people around 
the world that are a part of our church via the Internet and so forth. I hear husbands being described as petty tyrants, treating their wives like slaves, men that are clueless about what it means to love and lead their wives. Men that are addicted to work and hobbies and recreation and entertainment and even pornography. And as a result, wives feeling emotionally and spiritually abandoned. In many cases, wives being treated, frankly, like slaves. And as a result, they're lonely, they're disillusioned, they're sexually unresponsive. Having lived for years with an uncaring, unattentive, ungodly husband. And I hear about wives who are often unsubmissive, contentious, controlling, independent, emasculating, demanding their own way. Many are angry and sour and sullen and depressed. And others are lazy, undisciplined, immodest. They're gossips, busybodies, addicted to food, soap operas, romance novels. Oprah and shopping and on and on it goes. And then I constantly witness child centered homes where children set the agenda in the home and everything orbits around them. Children that are defiant, children that are allowed to resent authority and reject it completely. Children that will not mind the first time when they're asked. And they whine and pout and throw tantrums, and the parents seem utterly clueless. This is an increasing problem in our society, and even here, unfortunately, at Calvary Bible Church. It's very alarming to those of us in leadership. And, of course, the social engineers of our culture have all of the answers. And basically what they say is that we need to abolish the oppressive biblical roles of male headship and female submission in marriage. In fact, we even need to legalize same-sex marriage, which is an abomination to the Lord that has historically signaled the final phase of a civilization's existence before it implodes under the wrath of divine abandonment. They would tell us that we need to end the institution of marriage completely because all it is is, quote, legalized servitude. They would have us believe that women need to be liberated. They need to be relieved from the slavery of being keepers at home. They need to have careers and we need to let daycares and public schools and other government sponsored programs raise our children because after all after all it takes a village to raise a child they would have us believe that television needs to be the dominant influence in our children's lives and they would also tell us that children are basically inherently good and if you just provide for them the right kind of environment they're True natures will blossom. And indeed, that is true. And of course, we should never use any form of physical punishment because we all know that that makes children violent. And if children are unruly, we need to give them some kind of a diagnosis that tends to blame it all on some physical problem and then medicate them. And as a result... Of these social engineers and their so-called wisdom, we see the total collapse of the moral fiber of our society 
which will ultimately destroy our nation. Today, we witness a rise in domestic violence, child abuse, pedophilia, even sexual abuse by teachers. We watch what's going on in our junior highs and high schools in terms of the immorality, and it's absolutely beyond description. We see the erosion of parental rights in our society, an increase in unwed mothers, fatherless homes, divorce, militant homosexuality. And we see feminism corrupting our society like our society like a like an untreatable virus. As a result, we see our young men being emasculated and feminized and young women obsessed with physical appearance, dressing and acting like trollops. I did some research this last week and compiled a variety of statistics from various sources. I have them if you would like for me to give them to you. But according to the studies that I read, from 1970 to 1992, the divorce rate increased 279%. The number of children with a divorced parent increased 352%. The cohabitation population increased 533%, which means 2.7 million unmarried households now exist, and 40% of them contain children. Another study says that within six months of their marriage, 50% of newlyweds begin to doubt their marriage will last. 39% report, quote, big fights at least once a week, and 4% had already separated for at least one night. Another study indicated that between 1970 and 1995, the percentage of married couples with children dropped by a third, but single-parent families nearly doubled. And in 1960, there were 243,000 children living with a single parent who had never married. But by 1993, it went from 243,000 to 6.3 million. Today, there are 1.2 million children per year that are born into fatherless homes in America. And they estimate that right now we have 1.8 million so-called latchkey kids. As the study indicated that 20 years ago, 17% of American children grew up without a father. Today, it's 36%. In 1960, there were 8 million children living only with their mother. By 1995, it was 23 million. A study indicated that three of the fastest growing forms of the family in the United States between 1980 and 1995 was, number one, single mother families, number two, blended families with step parents, and number three, divorced families. In other words, the family left over after a divorce. And now we see the relationship between the breakdown of the family and problems in society. In fact, research has now established a clear link between the two. According to the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, divorce is the leading cause of childhood depression. According to the Center for Disease Control, 75% of adolescent patients at chemical abuse centers are from single-parent families. And also 63% of youth suicides are single-parent children. 
Another study indicated that 70 percent of teen age pregnancies are single parent children and 75 percent of juveniles in youth correction facilities are from single parent families. And another study indicated that children of divorce are five times more likely to be suspended from school, three times as likely to need psychological counseling, two times as likely to repeat a grade and are absent from school more, late to school more often, and show more health problems. Beloved, we are experiencing the wrath of divine abandonment in our country, according to Romans 1. And I would submit to you, as a minister of the gospel, that once upon a time, God brought about the floodwaters to judge the wicked upon the earth. And after that, he rained fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sent the plagues upon Egypt. He sent the fiery serpents upon Israel in the wilderness. And he later allowed the Assyrians to come and take them over. Then the Babylonians. And we can look through the Bible and we could see, for example, that he utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Every man, woman, child, and the Bible says even the nursing child, the camel, the donkey, and the sheep because of their wickedness. And we look down through redemptive history and we see repeatedly, time and time again, that civilizations that mocked the living God dried up and withered away under divine judgment. Will he not judge the most powerful nation in the history of the world? that was once founded upon many, many biblical truths, but has now done everything in its power to eviscerate the very knowledge and glory of God from the culture. Indeed, he will, even as he has promised to all of the nations who mock him and scoff at his word, we read in Revelation 19:15 that when he returns from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. Now, dear friends, I give that to you in order to frame what I want to share with you that is so important over the next few weeks, because one of the threads of commonality with all of the problems that we see in our culture that ultimately stem from our families and from our churches is a breakdown in an understanding of what men need to know with respect to being a man of God and a father. You must understand that God himself established two institutions. Number one, the glorious organism, the body of Christ, the church. And number two, the covenant of marriage, which is designed to picture the church. And when either of these go astray from their divinely ordained roles, you see a breakdown in society. If the church fails to preach the truth and hold Christians accountable, you know what will happen? Marriages will suffer. And likewise, if husbands and wives and fathers and mothers disobey God's instructions to them for their marriage and their family, Eventually, their churches will wither away in apostasy. And before our very eyes, we're seeing both things occur in our culture. As the church goes, so goes the culture. And sadly, we are now witnessing all of this. 
And yet, isn't it amazing how people complain about gas prices and complain about the economy and the rising cost of health care and the war in Iraq? And indeed, those are bad things. But folks, that's like complaining about your cable bill while your house is being swept away with a flood. People have no discernment today because they reject the spiritual authority of the word of God. So I call you this morning, each of you, but especially you men, to humble yourselves before the teaching of the word. Now, I warn you, over the next few weeks, you will not like what you hear. And some of you will say, well, what else is new? But we know that our flesh never favorably responds to the things of God. In fact, in Galatians 5:17, we read that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. Now, to be sure, the sting of the lash will be felt on all of our backs because in some way we are all guilty, as you will discover. But the word of God, we know, is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction, for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped and adequate for every good work. Now, I've chosen a text this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. And there's also a parallel passage in Colossians 3. And here I'm going to focus primarily on the virtues of a godly man, a godly father, even though it has much to say about the wives as well. But in both Ephesians and Colossians, I want you to understand that God speaks through his inspired apostle and there he delineates with utmost clarity a sequence of commands that outline his design and his order for a family. And the sequence of commands basically goes like this. Wives, you're to submit to your husbands. Colossians 3.18, Ephesians 5.22 through 24. And husbands, you're to love your wives. Colossians 3.19 and Colossians 5.25 through 33. Children are to obey their parents. Colossians 3.20 and Ephesians 6.1 through 3. And parents, do not provoke your children to anger. Colossians 3.21 and Ephesians 6.4. And in Ephesians 6.4, Paul also says that we are to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, beloved, these are the priorities that we must understand. And in order to fully grasp what God has to say here, we need to summarize the admonitions that he gives, first of all, in the first few verses here in Ephesians 5. And we want to begin there in verse 1. I just want to read them to you with very little content, the very first Uh, 17 verses and men, I want you to hear me now. Any man that wants to climb a mountain better be equipped. He better be in good shape. He better have all that he needs to do that. And I assure you that if you seek to climb the Everest of marriage or the Kilimanjaro of raising your children, you better listen to what God has to say. Or you will never reach the summit because these are spiritual matters of utmost importance. Now, let me give you an example here of what the apostle is saying to each of us, but men in particular. Here's where he begins. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. There's your first command. Be an imitator of God. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, 
an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, men, let's face it. There is no way that any of us can live up to these exhortations. Countless wives would give anything to have husbands who could consistently be imitators of God, walk in sacrificial love, be separated from immorality and greed, not have any filthy or silly talk, are always thankful, men who don't lie, who are discerning, who walk in the light and constantly are learning what is pleasing to the Lord. That's every woman's dream, every Christian woman's dream. And many of us as men, we long to be that way. And yet we know how often we fail. So the question is, is there any hope? And the answer is absolutely, but not in our own power, not in the power of the flesh. We cannot do this on our own men. We need divine enablement. We need supernatural help. We need the power of the indwelling spirit released in such a way that we can obey these commands. And that's what he refers to in the very next verse, which is the very heart of Paul's message here in Ephesians 5. Verse 18, he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Please understand, we cannot do any of God's will apart from his spirit. Sanctification is all of his grace. And I want to go ahead. We're going to come back to this in a moment. But I want you to notice what happens when we are filled with the spirit. Notice the results. Beginning in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, friends, I want you to notice a dominant theme here, and it can be summarized in one word, submission. There is to be mutual submission one to another. The family is to submit to the father. The husband is to submit to the needs of his wife. The father is to submit to the needs of his children. The children are to submit to the authority of their parents. And parents are to submit to their children's needs to be nurtured and instructed in the Lord. My, what a tall order. But this is God's design for the family. And thankfully, we're not left without resource. And we have it here beginning in verse 18. And men, I wish to focus on four commands that translate into four categories of virtue. And this morning, we're just going to cover one of them. And in the weeks to come, we will cover the rest. You will soon find that they will be easy to remember, yet impossible to live unless, now catch this, unless you obey the sequence. Unless you obey them in order, because they all build upon the other. Each one is the consequence of the previous command. Number one, you've got to be filled with the spirit. That's where you begin. Number two, we are commanded to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Number three, do not provoke your children to anger. And number four, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Said differently, if you're not filled with the spirit, you'll never be able to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And if you're not loving your your wife as Christ loved the church, you will provoke your children to anger. And you will not be able to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, ladies, you were invited to eavesdrop on this most solemn conversation. You will learn much about your husbands. You will learn much about fatherhood. You will also learn much about yourself and your role in your relationship with your husband and father, you will learn much about how to pray. But men, this is the very heart of what it means to be a man of God. Number one, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18. Notice, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now here, the Spirit of God, through His inspired apostle, uses a familiar illustration to contrast the way of the flesh with the way of the spirit. 
Let me give you a historical context here briefly. In that day, in Ephesus and the region surrounding that area, the pagans worshipped idols, and they often did so with a frenzied emotionalism that also ultimately ended up in sexual drunken orgies. You see, they believed that wine would somehow free a person from the material world and elevate them into a spiritual world. And wine would therefore induce some kind of a communion with the gods whereby they would receive special revelation, special wisdom from God that would be otherwise unattainable. And no doubt demons were there to oblige them. So what Paul is simply saying here is don't allow wine to influence your thinking, to control your behavior. Because the result of that, he says, is dissipation, a term that that means foolish overindulgence, the squandering of resources, a term that describes a person that is depraved and, and debauched and immoral. And of course, all of this is the inevitable result of drunkenness and intoxicating beverages, as we see in our culture. And instead, he says, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. Let Him influence your thinking and control your behavior. Now, the Greek verb, be filled, from a word, plereo, in the original language, has really three connotations that we see in the Word of God. Sometimes it denotes the idea of Permeation. It's used, for example, of salt that would permeate meat and give it flavor as well as preserve it. So he's saying at some level, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we are to be permeated with him. We will have a certain flavor of him. We will be such an influence in our corrupt society as to prevent decay. It was also used, this particular term, to denote wind filling a sail of a ship and therefore carrying that ship over the waters of a sea. In fact, Peter used this in 2 Peter 1.21 when he described the inspired writers of Scripture who were moved by the Holy Spirit. The idea of Something that is invisible, providing energy and a force that moves. And so we, when we're filled with the Spirit, we're not only to be permeated with Him, but we will be moved by Him in an invisible and powerful way. And thirdly, it was also used to describe domination or control. For example, we see it used in various passages in ways like, Someone is filled with anger or someone is filled with fear or filled with sorrow. And it's interesting that grammatically it is in the present passive imperative. Now, hang on here. This isn't really that complicated. The fact that it's in the present tense means that this filling calls for an habitual and continuous action. It's, it's not a one-time event never to be re- repeated. It could literally be translated, be being kept filled. 
So practically speaking, guys, it's not to say that we can kind of say to ourselves, well, you know what? Uh, I've racked up a lot of good boy points here lately, so uh, I think I can kind of indulge the flesh a little bit here and God will understand. No, we need to be being kept filled. It requires a constant habitual surrender to the will of God. That's what it means by the present tense. But it's also in the passive voice, which means that something other than ourselves is doing the filling. We can't fill ourselves up. It is the spirit that does that. It could literally be translate, allow yourselves to be filled. I was reading one commentator and he used the illustration of a glove. A glove by itself is powerless. It is utterly useless unless it is filled by a hand. That glove cannot act independently from the power that is within it in the hand. And likewise, it has no reason to brag about any of its accomplishments because it was not the glove that accomplished what it did. It was the power inside, namely the hand. This is what we see when somebody is filled with the spirit. So it's a present passive and an imperative. Imperative simply means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Men, let me put it to you this way. The God of the universe is telling you, here's what I expect you to do. Not think about it. Why don't you try this on for size? Now, this requires literally in order to be filled by the spirit, it requires a dying to self. It requires a surrender to the will of God. And by habitually choosing to walk in the paths of righteousness and godliness, what happens is the Holy Spirit begins to fill us up with his glorious graces. He permeates us. He causes us to bear the fruits of righteousness and and reap wonderful harvests of blessing. Being filled with the spirit could be. Defined this way, you've got to be committed to a moment by moment surrender to the will of God as it is revealed in Scripture. Men, you have to develop such a passion for God that it becomes your deepest desire to be permeated with the Spirit of God. That your deepest desire and longing is for Him to be the power that moves you along in your life. Your deepest desire that he controls your thoughts and your actions. And then when we do, he fills our soul with power and wisdom and courage and contentment and on and on it goes. In fact, in Galatians 5, 16, it's described a little bit differently. There we are commanded to walk by the spirit. And as a result, it says you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So when we volitionally do our part, we see later on in verse 22, the spirit of God doing his in verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Beloved, this is God's passionate desire for all of us. Now, men, life is all about choices. It's all about choices. You want to ask yourself right now, what permeates me? What moves me? What controls me? 
If you don't know, I'm sure your wife does. And your children will. The word of God says that we reap what we sow. Galatians 6, 7. This is a moral law not to be trifled with. For example, in Galatians 6, 7, we read, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. You're going to reap eternal life. That's not referring just to heaven, but also the highest quality of life, this side of it. Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, when a man sows to the flesh, he deceives himself for the flesh is his old fallen nature. And such sowing is nothing but evil. But to sow well is to sow under the influence of another power and to sow in another manner. In fact, it is, as the apostle says, to sow to the spirit. Years of counseling have revealed to me that most men tend to sow the wrong seeds in their marriages and in their families. Men, for example, if you sow indifference about your wife's spiritual growth and you refuse to kind of step up to the plate and lead her and teach her and train her and pray with her. And instead, you treat her like some servant rather than a fellow heir of the grace of life, as Peter said in First Peter 3, 7. If you refuse to treat her as a spiritual equal. If you sow anger and condescending control, if you make all of the decisions and it's OK for you to get mad, but never for her and on and on and on, you know what you're going to reap. You're going to reap a wife who is filled with fear and resentment, who feels oppressed, who is discouraged, who is emotionally and physically non-responsive. And children who live in fear, children who have no idea how to resolve conflict. The best they know is he who yells the loudest wins or when there's conflict, let's just shy away and pretend like it's not there. If men, you sow a lack of any involvement, no real love, no leadership, if you're emotionally unavailable, if you live in some parallel universe, and even when you're in the home, you're not there, you know what you're going to reap? You're going to reap a wife who is lonely and depressed and hopeless, looking for something to fill the void. And many times what they turn to are their children, and they develop a parasitic controlling involvement with their children. And if they don't find some relief there, many times they run into the arms of another. With no godly oversight, men, your children will end up living in a fantasy world of television and, and, and video games, cell phones, all this text messaging with their friends and their, their pet lovers, wasting their lives with mindless, carnal chit-chat that will inevitably bring them to ruin. I'm often stunned when I observe many Christian marriages, especially the men, and, and, and watch what they're sowing in their wives and in their family. And you see the result of it. And you ask, well, wh- where was dad in all of this? Oh, well, he was busy at work. 
Or, you know, uh, he's gone fishing or he's playing golf or, he, you know, he's watching a ball game or he's just plain undiscerning. And variations of these kinds of things could go on and on and on. Now, men, imagine the difference. Imagine a home where the husband is filled with the Spirit. A husband who has died to self, who has surrendered his will to the Spirit of God as it is revealed in the Word of God. A husband who is passionate about developing a secret devotion to God. A husband who is concerned about his own besetting sins. A man who is discerning about the distractions of the world that rob him of blessing. A man who meditates on the word and hides it in his heart. A man who faithfully and consistently cries out to God and says, Oh God, help me to know what it means to love my wife as Christ loved the church. God, help me to understand how to honor her and cherish her and protect her and serve her and lead her and raise my children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. God, help me to understand what it means when you say, do not provoke your children to anger because, God, I'm confident that I do that. Imagine that kind of home. Imagine a man that habitually prays with his wife and prays with his children. A man who habitually reads the word together with them and is committed to teaching them. A man that is faithful in family and corporate worship. A man whose passion is for his marriage to picture the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And for his children to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Nothing else in life even comes close to these kinds of priorities for a man who is filled with the Spirit. Men, in order for the indwelling Spirit of God to permeate you, to move you, to control you, in order for Him to unleash the power that is within you, because after all, the Spirit of God is already in you if you're truly a believer. In order for this to happen, in order for you to experience the full measure of His, of His power, you've got to choose to obey Him. And biblically, I went through just a few things. This requires a continual submission to the instructions of Scripture. It requires a continual consciousness of the Spirit's presence within, a continual walking in intimate fellowship with Christ, a continual dying and denying of self and sacrificial love for others, a continual crucifying of the flesh with its passions and desires, continual confession of sin and turning from it. Continual longing to display the glory of God in your life. A continual appetite for and meditation on the Word of God. A continual vigilance to avoid temptation and the clever schemes of Satan. And continual prayer seeking to be delivered from temptation. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And I ask you to examine your heart this morning, men. To search your heart. Always be suspect of your spirituality. Assume there are significant areas in your life that are displeasing to Him. Assume that there are the wrong things that permeate you, like anger. Assume there are the wrong things that move you, like your lusts or materialism or entertainment. Assume that there are the wrong things that control you. Like your own commitment to self. 
and then prayerfully open up the word of God and ask the spirit of God to teach you, to show you, to instruct you, to convict you, to comfort you, to correct you, to train you in righteousness. And he will. He will expose your selfishness, your pride, your lusts, your pathetic excuses and justifications and rationalizations. Men, each one of you know what I'm talking about. And then get serious about your own personal pursuit of holiness. You know, the Apostle Paul told young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, he said, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. Discipline, interesting word in the original language. It's um, a term, gubnadzo. We get our word gymnastics from it. And it literally means to exercise or to train in a rigorous manner. And here it's specifically speaking of rigorous training in spiritual self-discipline. Men, what I'm saying to you is you have got to start training like your life depends upon it. Because quite frankly, your marriage and your family does. It depends upon your discipline. Let me give you some practical things. I want you men to consider restructuring your schedule with some non-negotiable priorities. Let me give them to you. Your number one priority. And again, you need to, to, to put this in your schedule. You know how it works. If it's not on, on your schedule, it's probably not going to happen. Number one, schedule private personal devotions. Men, learn to get alone with God. Learn to cultivate a secret devotion. This is where spiritual filling begins. Choose a quality devotional guide or find some relevant book to something you're dealing with in your life. Get a Bible study guide. Get disciplined about your Bible study. Guys, get disciplined about reading. Think of all the thousands of hours we waste watching television. And I'm not saying you get rid of your television. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe that's an idol. But what I am saying is get serious about reading. Because the Spirit of God uses the great minds of of people to communicate His truths. Become men of the Word. I'm, I'm fascinated whenever I think in 2 Timothy 4. Remember, Paul is dying in a, in a Roman prison. And, and, and he asked Timothy to bring him the cloak I left at Troas with Carpus. Obviously, because he was cold in that rotting dungeon. And then he says, and bring me the books, especially the parchments, which is a reference to the Old Testament. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. He's dying, and what does he want? Something to keep him warm, and he wants the Word. And men learn to pray in that private time of devotion. You know, repeatedly in the Gospels, we read that the Lord Jesus went up into a mountain to pray. Guys, do you know what it's like to really get alone with God on a consistent basis and to enjoy that sweet communion? And I would encourage you when you do so, do so with your Bible open, reading the word, allowing the word to speak to you, a way of interacting with the Lord. I, I literally encourage you to pray the Bible. Let the word of God ignite your praise and exhort your heart and comfort your spirit. That's the first restructuring of a non-negotiable priority. The second one is schedule private worship with your wife. First Peter three, seven. Peter says, you husbands, likewise, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way. The idea of you need to study her. He went on to say, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your, catch this guys, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What a sobering threat. I mean, he's literally saying that if you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, and if you don't treat her in a submissive, loving, considerate way, chivalrous way, I'm not going to answer your prayers with respect to certain things. And he doesn't even go on to define that. Men, think of the cost here. Are you willing to cut off divine blessing in your life? I think of so many men that waste their prayers because they're not loving their wives as God would have them do. Forfeiting God's special resources. There in 1 Peter 3, 7, men were called to submit to our wives, not as a leader, but humbly tending to her needs as a weaker vessel. And you need to understand, spiritually she is our equal, but not physically. Fiber for fiber, men's muscles are 50% stronger than a woman to begin with. She is physically weaker. And that poses a whole unique set of needs, men, that many times are hard for us to understand. We are literally to subordinate our needs to hers. That's what it means when he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Guys, this means we are to be sensitive to her fears. We are to be considerate about her concerns. We are to care about her dreams and her passions. We've got to learn how to tenderly move into her heart and sacrificially love her. And this can't be done during TV commercials, men. You have to schedule it. It requires an atmosphere of uninterruption. I like to call it porch swing worship. That's where Nancy and I get alone. Quite often. If it's not a porch swing, you'll have a place and you need to schedule it. This is a sacred investment. Man, you sow this kind of love and you will reap an unimaginable harvest of marital bliss. Because God will answer your prayers. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. The third thing you need to schedule is family worship. You need to teach your kids that worship is something that happens not just in church, but it happens as a lifestyle. Be creative. Be age-specific. This is more than just praying before meals, men. Stand up. Be the priest of your home. Lead your family. Show them the sacredness of the Word of God. Read it. Discuss it. Memorize it. Apply it. Later on, we're going to get to this. That's what... It's referring to to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Sing songs together. Pray together. Do projects together. Go and serve the shut-ins together. Model Christian service with them. And then fourthly, you need to schedule corporate worship. Fathers, you've got to set the example here. If it's not a priority for you, it's not going to be a priority for your children. We are commanded in Hebrews 10... 
24, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Men, this is the stuff of spirit filling, the most foundational virtue of a godly man and a godly father to be filled with the spirit. I want you to notice the amazing consequence in verses 19 through 21. It says speaking, which literally means to make a sound, speaking to one another in psalms. This is referring to Old Testament psalms put to music and hymns. These are songs of praise that exalt God and spiritual songs. These would refer to uh, songs of testimony that encompass a broad spectrum of spiritual truth. This will be the result of, of spiritual filling. You're going to speak to one another in, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And it says singing and making melody. I love making melody. Um, we saw that here today with, with David and Mike. It literally means in the original language to pluck a stringed instrument with the fingers. Singing and making melody with your heart. And notice the object of our praise. It's to the Lord. Isn't it interesting? A spirit filled person is always going to have a song in their heart. I mean, recently we've been studying Paul and Silas. They were being tortured in in a prison in in the, the stocks, in the racks there. And what were they doing? They were singing. How on earth could anybody sing in a time like that? The answer is simple. They were filled with the spirit of God. By the way, it's interesting how different the music of the Christian is from the music of the world. And the reason is because we worship a different God. That's why our music sounds different. Our music is God's music, the music of heaven. And it's so tragic. What a tragic mistake to somehow make God's music be so similar to the music of the world that you can't tell it apart. And then to say that somehow we're going to use this kind of music that sounds just like the world to evangelize the lost. I mean, folks, that sends the wrong message, doesn't it? What, tells, what that tells them is, hey, you know what? Since your music sounds just like the music that I like, I guess there's really no difference between the Christian life and my life. You see how that works? You've got to be so careful with that. We know that someday God will silence the world's music. Revelation 18:22. it will not be heard any longer. But this is the result of being spirit filled. He goes on to say they're always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You see, spirit filled Christians are always praising the Lord. They're filled with joy. They're filled with contentment and peace and a passion to serve. Ladies, I ask you, would you not love to be married to this kind of man? I hope you are. And men, wouldn't you love to be like this? I hope you agree that you would. To be a man whose heart is overflowing with songs and praise and spiritual truth. That's giving thanks in all things in the name of Christ. Even, ladies... When you back into his truck, wouldn't you love to have that kind of a man? A man that is submissive to your needs, 
that is submissive to the special needs of your children, a man who is so selfless that he is subject to you in the fear of Christ, that he seeks your highest good over his own. That's a spirit filled man. But men, we could never do this apart from the spirit of God. Apart from divine enablement. And without this, we could never obey the next command. And that is for husbands to love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. We will examine that next week. Oh, dear brothers in Christ, I plead with you to concur with the same convictions that I have about myself in my heart. To get serious about being filled with the Spirit. For the sake of your wives. For the sake of your children. And for the sake of the one who has saved you by His grace. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the clarity of Your Word. But Lord, we confess that what You've called us to is exceedingly far beyond our abilities in the flesh. And yet we rejoice that You have given us Your indwelling Spirit to enable us to do that which You have commanded. Lord, we praise You for that and we beg You to help us to live consistently with these great truths. I pray for every man that is here to get serious about being filled with the Spirit. And Lord, I lift up those who know nothing of what we speak about this morning, who know nothing of the Savior. I pray that You will bring great and profound conviction to their heart and cause them to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.